This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. everybody welcome to the podcast called overdue it's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read my name is craig my name is andrew craig have you been taken over by an alien because the way you read that introduction <laughs> makes me think that maybe you're an alien pretending to be my friend craig usually i can just spit out the intro in response to whatever dumb opening we came up with uh-huh, but this time we couldn't do it yeah we said a lot of bad dumb things and so that... i got a little turned around it's like when you're in the grocery store and you like have a list you're going through and then you forget an ingredient and you double back and then you don't know where barbecue sauce is anymore and they like changed the signs um, see Susanna writes her grocery list in order so she can snake through the store and grab everything i am like it's playing what? supermarket sweep. <laughs> Not even supermarket sweep, just like supermarket Calvin Ball, where I just write things down as I think about it, and then eh, I go more or less like through the store yes. the way that the store is set up, but it's not very a very good job. You, this, so this is a good intro too. It's it the is grocery store. You, na- you navigate the store by taste, is what you're saying. You just yes, lick but- your way through the store. I uh, brought up Aliens partly because of the book that you read this week. Oh, Every sure. week, one of us reads a book that the that, that we've never read before, and then we explain it to the other one, and that's the show. Podcast. Podcast. Um, so yeah, this week I read Dawn by Octavia Butler. Uh, this book was recommended to us by one of our Patreon supporters, DJ. Thank you, DJ. Um, we have you don't call them illustrious anymore. One of our peerless patreon donors <laughs> you go dj <laughs> you can go to patreon.com slash overdue pod for more information um we have talked about octavia butler before andrew you read kindred i last read year? kindred for episode 286 okay so go back to that one and listen to it if you want to um could you summarize all of that right now the whole podcast <laughs> just like cliff's notes i'm gonna give you 10 version. seconds go. i uh, so as we talk about a little bit in that episode, let's talk about Butler a little bit. Um, she is the first sci-fi writer to be given a MacArthur Genius Grant in 1995. Mm. Um, and she was a full-time author from the late 70s until her death at age 58 in 2006. Um, some of her earliest successful novels were the uh, Patternist series, which she worked on in the late 70s through to like the early mid 80s. And then uh, Kindred, which came out in uh, 1979. Those were like her first big things. Yes, yes. Um, and then in the mid-80s, she started to find big success with her short story, uh, Speech Sounds, which won a Hugo Award for short story. And then in 1985, the book uh, Bloodchild won the Hugo Award, the Locus Award, and a bunch of others. Um, she is noteworthy for being a black woman, which is not a... Uh, not a viewpoint that you get in a lot of sci-fi or fantasy fiction. No. Um, I got from, from a, um, a 
summary of of Dawn that I found on the site off the shelf. This is a someone named Bianca Salvant who is writing about about Butler, and she says uh, Butler was the first Black Am- American woman science fiction writer to achieve international acclaim. Butler began her writing career because of a conviction to see herself in stories that weren't oppressive or harmful, and I think that's really that still really resonates today, especially around like Oscar season when you do you do see more representation than you used to but especially in like black fiction they tend to be about oppression or about struggle yes and that's like the the way that that we are allowed to like praise and and reward like black fiction and um, there's a there's a 2013 ebony article i read about this that um that sums it up well. While it's worth noting that having three movies about the black experience in the Oscar race is disproportionately high, their themes fit into a very narrow box. So yeah, it's when we try to program for the show and, and be better about like author representation. I think that's something we, we worry about a little bit is, is to read stories that are from diverse voices without reading stories that are like exclusively about the struggles that those yeah, so have, have had in America or, or in the world or anywhere. Yeah, so this trilogy, and we'll get into how it's related to this book specifically, but she, um, this trilogy, the Xenogenesis trilogy, also referred to as Lilith's Brood, I think it was collected as, as one edition at some point. Yeah, so starting in um, 2000, I think, um, it started to be published. Like when you go to Amazon now and look at the box set, it's, it's known as Lilith's Brood, but also the uh, Xenogenesis trilogy. Sure. So I think either is fine. Xenogenesis trilogy just sounds cooler to yes, me. <laughs> Lilith's Brood sounds like a StarCraft expansion. <laughs> Both accurate, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. um, so it's Dawn, which we're talking about today in 1987, Adulthood Rights in 1988, and Imago in 1989. And they, they are about hierarchy, and the main character is a black woman, and the fact that she is a woman plays, I would say, a bigger part in the specifics of the novel than that she is a person of color um though there is a there is some racism in the book discussed with another character and then it is still about oppression and it is still about hierarchy she has some she's written a lot about what she, she thinks hierarchy and and it is a fatal flaw of humankind and that that is explicitly expressed in this book um mm-hmm. and that it leads to all sorts of oppression um, and various forms of it. I think I read a quote in our Kindred episode that was from like an essay she had written on a, on a UN committee on racism um, talking about how hierarchy, everything all the way down to like, you know, needling the kid you don't like on the playground um, is just a form of the same human impulse that leads to like making other people less than. Mm -hmm. Um, So it is it is this book also being a uh first encounter story um and a story of aliens that are more powerful than humans in some ways um it lends itself to comparisons to like imperialism and colonialism and like how various peoples in human history and human present have uh like met each other and oppressed each other or not (laughs) how come so many alien stories are about us encountering an alien species that's more advanced than us why can't we ever (laughs) encounter aliens that just like suck they're a bunch of like wiener aliens 
And we go up to their spaceship and we dump their books and we call them nerds. (laughs) First bully stories is what you're Mm -hmm. calling them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I guess they must exist. There must be some episodes of Star Trek that are like, oh, we found the cavemen planet and we have to decide whether or not to leave them like in the technological past or not. Well, so no, you don't ever really have to decide <laughs> like technically because the prime directive of Starfleet is that pre-warp technology or pre-warp societies are to be left alone to develop on their own and then once they get to warp technology that's the benchmark for like, oh, this society is advanced enough and hopefully enlightened enough that they could survive contact with an alien species without like destroying us or themselves. Oh, my God. So that rule gets broken a lot because <laughs> otherwise you wouldn't really have a TV show. But yeah, it is what they're supposed to do. Suppose they're supposed to be a prime directive. Sure, sure. Um, this book, it's also worth thinking about it be, being a product of the late 80s. There are characters that were, um, you know, we'll talk about how they are awakened from a long sleep. Um, but the time period that they are leaving is an end of the Cold War and a very violent end of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a quote from an interview. She's, she says, I think of the space race as a way of having a nuclear war without having one. Uh, Butler claimed that the, that Ronald Reagan believed a nuclear war against the Soviet Union was winnable. She admitted to being very confused by this idea and said that it contributed to her idea for the Xenogenesis books. She said, quote, there must be something basic, something really genetically wrong with us if we're falling for this stuff. Yeah, winnable is a is a neat word, uh, huh? <laughs> like, really could, bad. Could you define, define winnable for me, please? In a nuclear war scenario? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so that... that this book starts with a premise of what if the Cold War became the, a hot war and we all, most of us were just either vaporized or the planet was becoming uninhabitable or something like right. that. Um, the one thing I found, so you asked me to look up like publication stuff around sure, this sure. book. The one thing that I did find consistently in a couple different places was that uh, Butler traveled to the uh, the Amazon rainforest and to the Andes Mountains to do research for this book. We can yeah, talk about sure. how that oh, comes cool. up or does okay. not come up. Yeah. Um, but she climbed in, in Peru a mountain called uh, Haina Pichu. Mm-hmm. Pronunciation is just completely You got the Pichu, me. though. I tried. Yeah, I know about Pichu, <laughs> my favorite Smash Brothers character. Um but she compared the process of climbing that mountain to the process of writing. And this is a quote from her. Huh. Um, it's an easy climb for anyone who is okay, you know. I mean, even if you're not in very good shape. But I managed to hurt my knee hiking. I kept saying, this is high enough. This is high enough. Why don't I go back down? I got all the way to the top, crawled through the little cave, and got to the top of the mountain and came back down. That's what I mean. It's a good metaphor for writing because there will always come a time in writing a novel, for instance, a long undertaking like that, when you don't think you can do it or you think it's so bad you want to throw it away. I tell the students that there comes a time when you want to either burn it or flush it, but if you keep going, you know, that's what makes you a writer instead of an I wish I was a writer. Huh. That's cool. I've never... Just just assuming it's it's better to have something that's not perfect that you can like go back and and yeah. fix rather than just like getting frustrated with it and flushing it. I mean, I I don't write fiction and I don't write super long stuff most of the time, but 
many, many times in the process of writing an article. There's a there's a well-documented arc of like really excited about it. And then you start like researching it and start writing it. And then you get to a place where it's the worst thing you've ever done and it will never be finished. And then right after that, you finish it and publish it and it's fine. Yes, mostly, most of the time. Yeah. Yeah, making a play is sort of like having to climb a mountain and there's someone behind you always poking you with a stick. Like you can't stop because opening... It, there's, it's always there. You can't mm-hmm. get off that ride. Right. So you're going to hate it and you're going to want to get off the mountain at some <laughs> point, usually and during the, tech. <laughs> the only other thing about um, about Dawn and the Xenogenesis books um, that I wanted to talk about really quickly is um, in August of 2017, there was news making the rounds that uh, Ava DuVernay, who was known for directing um, Selma and the Wrinkle in Time movie. Yeah. She was said to be adapting Dawn for TV, but there has been no like discussion or like no news about that in like a year and a half. So I, I know that these things can take a long time, but I, that we haven't heard anything else about the development kind of isn't like an amazing sign. There were rumors of it also with different people attached to it back in like 2014, 2015. So I think I wonder if whoever, you know, Ava has a lot of like clout right now. So yeah. if she can strike while the iron's hot, that'd be great. It's just, a, it's a golden age of being able to get a TV show made somewhere. <laughs> yes. Someone's got money lying around. Yeah. Most of the time. Well, I mean, if they're, of- ad- they're adapting the Wheel of Time series. That's <laughs> Speaking of money, Andrew, we got to make some. So let's take a quick break and then I'll, we'll come back. I'll talk about the book. Sounds great. Craig, it's the new year still. Yeah, it's still 2019. Uh, which means new resolutions, and we've got one that you're working on twice every day. Aww. It's brushing your teeth. <laughs> this week's episode of Overdue, of course, is brought to you by our pals at Quip. They're those people who make that good, good toothbrush. Mm. Um, you know why we love Quip? Let's talk about it. We like it because it's got sensitive sonic vibrations for an effective clean that's gentle on your sensitive gums. Did you know that overbrushing is a thing, Craig, that the dentist will yell at you about? Yeah. Because I, I found a, it out. Have they actually <laughs> yelled at you about it? Yeah, because oh. one time one time I went in and they were like, Oh, you're not you're not brushing close enough to your gums. And then the very next time I went in and they're like, you know, you're under you're overbrushing a <laughs> little bit. Your gums are your gums. Yeah, great. So one other reason I really like Quip is because they deliver new brush heads for you automatically on a dentist recommended schedule every three months for just five dollars. Um, it's a friendly reminder when it's time for a refresh and for you to stay committed to your oral health. Um, 75% of us apparently use old worn out bristles that are ineffective. I am the 75% usually, but since I got a Quip toothbrush, that's not the case anymore. So Quip is one of the first electric toothbrushes accepted by the American Dental Association, and they're backed by over 25,000 dental professionals. They have thousands of verified five-star reviews. That's why I love Quip and why over 1 million happy, healthy mouths do too. Uh, Quip starts at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash overdue right now, you can get your first refill pack for free. It's a $5 value for free. So go to getquip.com slash overdue. Get your first refill pack for free with a Quip toothbrush. Andrew, what are the oldest stories? Beowulf. 
older than that. The Bible. Older than that, maybe. Um, Myths. Spoiler, it's myths. Okay. (laughs) If you've been digging uh, our Odyssey eps, you might dig Mythology, a new podcast from the Parcast Network, which takes a deep dive into uh, the history, origins, and meanings of each myth. Um, The stories have casts of voice actors that bring a lesson about the human condition to life. These dramatizations give us insight into how our ancestors saw the world, and they've got Greek, Norse, Egyptian myths, as well as Sumerian, African, and Japanese stories, Andrew. Ooh, getting a little off the beaten path. Yeah. Um, There are currently episodes available for the Greek goddess Athena, and you can listen uh, after the end of this podcast to uh, a segment of that, so you can get a taste of the mythology series. Yeah, if you you enjoy our uh, Stop Homer Time episodes, we think this this podcast will be a really cool fit for you. Yeah, so give a listen to that, uh, see if you like it, Um, and then they'll have stuff on Loki, Gilgamesh, um, and some Egyptian myths as well, and there are new episodes every Tuesday. so what you want to do if you want to check out Mythology, you need to search and subscribe to Mythology wherever you listen to podcasts. Again, that's M-Y-T-H-O-L-O-G-Y. Or visit parcast.com slash mythology to start listening now. That's parcast, P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com slash mythology to listen now. Andrew, let's talk about the book Dawn by Octavia Butler now. Let's, Let's get talk into about it. the book Dawn. So, yeah. For Tell our me list, what it's about. Yeah. So, this, a, this is a Twilight book, right? It's not a Twilight book. Mm. Though there is a part of it that made me think of Twilight. Dang. Okay, dang great, it. Um, I do want to give a heads up. There is like, there's some forced uh, genetic swapping in this book. That that's one way to refer to. Well, it is both like the a process euf- of making love. I guess. Well, it is both a euphemism for like sexual contact, and also like there's genet- literal genetic swapping going on, and mm-hmm. people are forced or coerced into it. Um, there are characters that attempt uh, sexual assault in this book. I don't think we're going to get into too nitty gritty on like the details of how it's portrayed, but if that is at all like might make your listening experience uh, less than ideal like skip some stuff or come back to it after as you need to um so this book opens like a twilight zone episode not like a twilight book like a twilight zone episode mm. andrew so uh put the put this down in your notes the twilight zone would be a good name for a twilight fan cast <sighs> if it's not already dang <laughs> okay uh, tm 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 we would be, I think we would be breaking a lot of copyrights. I don't know. A lot of DMCAs on that one. Yes. So we open with our main character, Lilith Iapo, uh, an African-American woman um, who is undergoing another awakening. And she wakes up in like a blank room um, that is like white slash gray walls, featureless. There is a bathroom sometimes, she says, because she has hmm. woken up like this a couple of times and like this is this is like a sounds like a subpar airbnb that she's saying <laughs> yes um except she doesn't get to determine when she arrives or leaves she just mm-hmm. like falls asleep and then wakes up and it's a different airbnb which sounds so horrible you, you said i want to i want to clear up something real quick you said she was african-american i want to make sure that that means that there is an america in yes. this universe and yes. she is from it okay yes um, so she wakes up and this time there are clothes for her to put on 
This time, she has a scar on her abdomen that she doesn't know what's going on. And she talks about how whenever she wakes up, she starts, like, digging around the room, trying to find, like, a door. There's no door. There's no windows. There's no, like... It's like those, um, those like, hidden object rooms. Those, like... They're either on Flash or, like, on your phone where it's, like, a little cartoon room and you can, like, click on stuff to solve puzzles. It's like an escape room, sort of. Or, like, a point-and-click adventure game. Yeah, yeah. She's trying to combine the, you know, banana with the car engine to solve the monkey island to puzzle win the pirate duel yeah <laughs> yeah and she remembers this is all from like close third person so we get some information on uh she remembers that humanity basically wiped itself out with a nuclear war uh sometime in what i guess would be the late 80s it's hard to tell thanks ronald yep. thanks ronnie Good. thanks ronnie um <laughs> he's a bad dude and she did have <laughs> Uh, a husband and a son, uh, both of whom died before the war broke out. And then, like, as a result of the war and the planet dying due to nuclear strikes, like, the northern hemisphere was basically uninhabitable. There was, like, a great freeze. And then she doesn't really remember much after that. And then she just started waking up in this room. Um, she does remember when whoever's keeping her there, because they do talk to her from, you know, a hole in the wall or something it's unclear okay mm-hmm. um they brought her like a little kid to hang out with for like great <laughs> cool <laughs> like a little how old a kid are we talking about like five like he's i think he's an indian boy like and they teach indian each other from india for, right? yeah from from the country okay. um, right, i'm making sure because this is like the 80s and maybe we're yeah. still no 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 okay um, um yeah, five's an okay age to hang out with, I think. She's 28, she thinks. 26 or 28. She's not sure. 26 or 28. Mm-hmm. So she's been, she doesn't know how long she's been asleep, and she doesn't know how long she goes to sleep when she passes out. Um, but she's like awake for periods of time. And one of those times she hangs out with this kid, and they teach each other like their languages and songs, and then she goes to sleep and he's gone. And it's really sad. Okay. The inciting incident for this book is uh, she wakes up this last time. As I said, there are clothes this time. It's weird for her They've because she doesn't know why that is. And one of, the, one of her captors appears in the room. And at first she thinks it's like a person. Just it's like dark in that corner of the room or something. Mm-hmm. And then the lights come up and it is an alien um, that is like... It's it's hard to describe. It is tall and gray and vaguely androgynous, and it has, like, flat skin that sort of, when she ends up touching it, it feels like fingernails, and it's huh. covered in what she thinks is hair. Okay. But then it's not. It's tentacles? Because for a minute you were describing those, the aliens who run the clone facilities in the Star Wars movie. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. No, it's uh, maybe like that, but if they were covered in like sea cucumber hair. Okay. <laughs> all over their body. And now you're describing like a, like what like a I think a fry, it. a fry kid grows up into. <laughs> sure. A fry adult. And there is like an element of um, almost Lovecraftian like cosmic horror stuff in her inability to 
like look at and handle this thing for for okay. a long period of time. Sure. Um, at one point, she even calls it like a true xenophobia. Like I think when we say xenophobia as we use it in the real world, like it's like more weaponized as bigotry. Like people are not. It's not that people are afraid. It's that people are weaponizing difference um or making you know putting people into marginalized categories Well, because it's literally literally translated it means fear of the other and this this is a thing that happens in in science fiction kind of a lot like i, I think there are multiple science fiction universes where humans stop regarding each other as the other once they come in contact with like a true other like a like an alien literally from another planet yes so yeah usually when we are we're talking about xenophobia here we're talking about fear of other humans but once you introduce non-humans into that mix the term tends to shift meaning a little bit it does and we this is one of the few stories I've read where like we watch a character go through that process and like realize that in herself of like, oh, dip, like this is a different ball game altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, the creature can talk to her. Its name is Jedaya, which is short for a bunch of letters in a row that I will never pronounce correctly, which I think is okay. on purpose. Mm-hmm. Um that it's like a naming your convention. human tongue cannot <laughs> pronounce my name <laughs> true but you may call me Derek <laughs> and she starts to learn like what's going on so like the first the book is divided into four sections um womb family nursery and the training floor okay and most of what i think we'll end up talking about today are in the the womb and family sections because that's where we get the bulk of the world building mm-hmm. and what what this book is really up to um but like the bulk of the womb section is her like learning about what happened to humanity learning what the aliens want for her and by extension humans in general and learning about the aliens. Um, so as I said, there was a war that wiped out most of the planet. And for what for whatever reason, the aliens were like, yo, let's go there and save those guys. Mm-hmm. Now they say that they are there to like, they wanted to help humanity. And for, for a period of time, you're like, oh, why? What? That's very nice of you. Um, <laughs> but they are, they consider themselves traders, like, like T-R-A-D-E-R-S. Yeah, like Trader Joe. They are Space mm-hmm. Trader Joe. And they are they have a biological imperative to like swap genes or acquire new genetic material. Okay, this is a bad pickup line so far. Yeah. <laughs> oh God. Sorry, baby, it's my genetic it's imperative. Biological <laughs> imperative. And one of the one of the things that we learn early on is that Lilith's family like her in her genes she is prone to cancer and like her cells turning against her body it's it's hereditary Mm -hmm. and apparently these aliens don't have cancer or a thing like it but learning how to use their own cells that way is like really exciting to them how do you like how do you mean is is it about 
like the mutation of it or yes. is it about how it can like divide and spread like what's the what are they trying to do it it crops up a couple times through the book and so like thematically it is sort of about using what you presume as a weakness to to maybe become a strength or or like sharing another person's weakness to become a strength of yours um but it's kind of like how how medicine has tried to like co-opt how viruses work to, to yeah. develop cures for things so quite I think quite literally for the aliens who are called the Owen Collie, um, O-A-N-K-A-L-I. Owen Collie and the Infinite Sadness is my favorite of the Smashing Pumpkins albums. <laughs> Tonight. Tonight. <laughs> uh, they're, That's how that song goes. They're going to use... Uh, basically, like they use the part of cancer that is t- is reverting cells to their embryonic state, basically like stem cell research, like very advanced stem cell technology. Okay, um, where they can then use it to regenerate, because um, they they are super cool aliens who can heal pretty good, but like if parts of their body are wounded, they're, they're never going to come back from it. So sure, having Wolverine powers is appealing to them, and uh they want to be less scary when they meet new species so apparently cancer will unlock like uh mystique powers is not is it not mystique yeah whatever the one that can they just, they want to they want to shape shift to be less imposing yes. or to yes. to blend in better with whoever it is they're trying to contact yes so that they don't have to go through this like century long process of acclimating the new species to them um, that sure. they want to trade with. And their plan is they're going to use Lilith, they're going to train her up and like get her ready to awaken a bunch of other humans um, and then send them all down to Earth. And they're going to start repopulating Earth. And this is exciting to the Owen Kali because they will then like trade some genes with humanity and the part that's really freaky to Lilith is that the, the people who, there are going to be people who stay on the ship uh, and go with the Owen Collie. There are going to be people who go on a new ship with the Owen Collie. And there are going to be people who go on Earth and hang out with the Owen Collie until they're ready to okay. leave for space. Mm-hmm. All of that requires the fact that the Owen Collie are going to like swap genes with humans which means giving humans like non-human genetic material. Okay. It's well. not like a sisterhood of the traveling pants thing where they're swapping genes. No, it's not that. It's mm-hmm. like I'm going to force a pair of genes on you. You're going to and I'm going to force you to give me some of your genes. Mm-hmm. And now those genes are no longer yours, they're mine. They're my genes. <laughs> my genes. Uh, and also now humanity will basically cease to exist. Like humanity as it <laughs> humanity as it existed before the Owen Collie intervened will no longer exist because none of their DNA will be pure. But the yeah, and the, but this new species or like combined species will result from it. Yes. And, theory, right? and theoretically be better at existing who knows because it sounds like a thing where like maybe humanity wasn't gonna exist anyway so like how how clear is it that humanity had no choice if it wanted to continue on in any form well we we don't get an objective 
like verdict on that. We get what the Owen Collie tell Lilith. And Lilith like Lilith remind what I don't remember what the name of the protagonist in Kindred is, but there is a from what I can read about Butler's work, you're gonna Google who that is real quick. I am, yeah. Um from what I'm I've just been reading Kindlin. about her work, it, it, there is a similar type of character who is a strong um a strong female character in the sense that she is willing to do what it takes to survive, and often that means choosing between bad choices. Um, and in this case, like she is less powerful, has less resources, is a captive of these aliens, and they are saying, like, hey, we've got a good deal for you, take it, even if it means your species will no longer be your species. And mm-hmm. she she rejects an offer at one point for one of the aliens to take her life. Um, cause they, cause Jediah can tell that she's like really bumming about all of this and she's like, ah, no, my will to survive is too strong. So let's keep going. Um, did you find the name of that, of the woman from Kindred? Dana, Dana Franklin. So yeah, she reminds me of, of Dana in that way in that like she is forced into a situation in which she has very little power, seizes on the few instances where she does and because people expect things of her um, or want things of her and is willing to, to manipulate that to, to stay alive as best she can. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the thing about this being like humans were always going to do this, which is what kind of what you just said, the Owen Kali say that there are two things that humans have. There are two primary traits. They're intelligent Cool. Uh-huh. Great. Thanks. That's okay. That's yeah. very generous. And they're like, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and they're like, that would have been fine, but you're also hierarchical. You also sort yourself in a power structure. And if you had actually used your intelligence to combat that, you wouldn't have destroyed yourselves. Um, and again, the, the this idea of the of cancer comes up. So the I think this is jediah talking to her or it might be the one of the aliens nikanj that she becomes a partner with let me just say this. i'm sorry this feels like aliens kind of trying to neg humanity <laughs> yep, a little bit because they're like you guys are so smart like don't get me don't get it twisted you guys are so so smart but also you're bad and terrible yep and you need and you us. try to sort yourselves like you try to come into my house and tell me what's wrong with me aliens but you've also I don't think so you've also burned your house down and are just like sitting there waiting to die without a new house mm. hmm the one of the aliens says intelligence does enable you to deny facts you dislike but your denial doesn't matter a cancer growing in someone's body will go on growing in spite of denial and a complex combination of genes that work together to make you intelligent as well as hierarchical will still handicap you whether you acknowledge it or not. Aliens have clearly never read The Secret. <laughs> That's true. And the the Owen Collie claim to not be hierarchical, hierarchical the way humans are, but the book very clearly shows them... N- being that way so they have three genders andrew though and Kali do okay there are males there are females and there are uloi and o-o-l-o-i uh-huh. and uh lilith is actually like assigned to an uloi named nakanj um sort of as a mate it's unclear uh, at first it's unclear but it's definitely as a mate um <laughs> and 
uh, they are able to like they're extra sensitive to observing and manipulating genetic material and the way that they reproduce involves like bonding two other mates together which is why there's always a male a female and an uloi and later in the book when we awaken a bunch of humans and they're like living in this little colony together the end game of the aliens is to have all the humans pair up and then assign an uloi to like each pairing so that they can space bang or something <laughs> okay <laughs> the big bang the big bang and and that's how they're going to create this like new race uh, or this new species or maybe as the owen collie are thinking about it a new species of owen collie where like now they're just part human i think okay it's, it's there is a I think this is where you can start thinking about the book as a like an allegory for slavery or other forms of imperial culture where like a a domineering dominating culture comes in says this is how we're going to do it this is how we're going to do things we're in charge of you we're in control of you and then maybe the oppressed people like win their their freedom in a, like a legal sense but then they still have to like exist within the parameters of the oppressors so like the all, we don't ever leave the ship in this book the humans we okay. meet like wake up and they have to like live with these aliens and deal with the fact that they're living with these aliens who control everything about their lives um and that that to me is an is like butler exploring some of the hierarchical stuff about humanity without actually you know just being set in earth okay um there's some stuff about the like humans as animals too which like very literally humans as like pets and being owned by the owen collie that's really making makes me uncomfortable thinking about how we own animals (laughs) okay so they at one point she's hanging out with this alien Nakanj and she can't yet speak their language and it can't quite speak English yet because uh, it's still learning. But she's like walking around with it and it shows her off to a bunch of other Uloi and it's like it took her to the dog park and is like, check out my fancy human. Isn't it That's, neat? That really. Okay. So the two things that that humans are apparently is intelligent but hierarchical so what you've done here is to do a thing that demeans our intelligence and also clearly creates a hierarchy between you the alien who wants to get with me and me a human yes so that doesn't seem great no it doesn't seem ideal it's not great it's very bad (laughs) (laughs) and so like but the book does a, a pretty good job of showing that she doesn't really have another option. The best she can do is like go along with their plan until she has this like colony of humans who are ready to go to Earth. And then I guess their plan is like get to Earth and run away. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but along the way, as they're training her, they give her super strength 
They give her the Wolverine healing factor. <laughs> they give her they change like the chemical nature of her body so that she can control elements of the ship. So like one of the neat things, and I don't know if there's another alien like fictional fictional alien race I said in my brain because <laughs> we because as opposed uh, to the real ones. Right. Um you don't know. I, I mean, you don't, don't know. know. <laughs> um they don't really have machines. They exist on this ship that is a big plant creature that and they can just tell it to do stuff. Mm-hmm. So like if you need when they put her with the other humans, they like give her the power to make walls. So she's sort of just playing Minecraft all the time. Um <laughs> And she can like grow walls and stuff, and that's it's how telling she can grow walls, but she can't grow bridges. Oh god, it's so sad. Oh my god, it's a symbol for humanity. <laughs> and they have like little like cars on the ship, but they're actually just creatures that look like hover platforms that like roll around on their own juice. Um, and all the people who are stored for for centuries are actually like encased in these like carnivorous plants that have been trained not to kill them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of neat that it's that there is not a they don't have technology in the way that we think of technology. Like that is something that I was impressed by reading the book that it is a it's not just oh they have warp technology like it's not oh they got better at computers and that's why they can travel through space it's like they are literally different creatures who can manipulate creatures differently okay interesting are there is there anything like analogous in star trek or anything like that i'm just trying to think on like fictional universes where there are lots of aliens where there might be something like that the aliens that have just like turned their backs on technology or who just don't have it they just function very differently from what we so like most of the aliens we see in in movie and film mostly because it's like easier to make the costume this way is like they're sort of just people who are different and maybe they're all angry people or maybe they're all like super diplomatic people um but the best alien fiction for me like envisions a totally different type of creature and oftentimes it's just bugs but there's not bugs in this book yeah i feel like like most star trek alien species are like there is there's often the technological spectrum like i I just talked about like the the warp technology thing being being a key dividing line but often they are their technology is comparable in some way and then they just as a race have some certain like defining characteristic okay like klingons are very honor driven and <laughs> and bellicose and ferengi love money a lot and <laughs> i guess there are a couple of okay so we just watched star trek insurrection not that long ago because Susanna and i are watching all the star trek movies in order uh-oh um and that one is about a race of of people who like split at some point and they're both trying to chase immortality in different ways. Okay. Um, one like turn their back on technology, but lives on a planet where everybody gets young all the time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that one. Yes. I remember that. Yeah. Okay. And then one is like a race of, of people who just have, have elevated plastic surgery to an art form. Um, and then in Star Trek Deep Space Nine, you have the uh, the changeling race who are a giant like Odo is a is a changeling um, and they can just like change into different stuff. They don't really have technology, but they do 
I think because they can become different things, they do like exercise a lot of control over other beings. And so they sort of use those like the, the the ships and the technology of those races as a way to like get around and to exert pressure on other people and, and stuff like that. Hmm. So yeah, it's it's interesting like just hearing you think through the different species in the in the Star Trek universe because in this universe it is implied that like there are other alien creatures out there and whatever, but the Owen Kali are kind of equipped to be a very dominant species by just like showing up and like and just and just owning everybody in debates yes and then like (laughs) when you say they're a dominant species it very much (laughs) makes me think of they just show up and they say debate me and they just own they own cultures well they erase cultures like so one of the things that comes up a lot is uh, Lilith wants the ability to like write stuff down. She wants to, it's a way that she thinks she'll be able to better remember their language, to remember the lessons they're teaching her because they're teaching her to like survive in the wilderness. And then she's going to supposed to be able to teach that to the other humans once they're comfortable with the aliens. Um, and she's like, can I just like write this down? And they're like, no, we just remember everything. <laughs> it's just, and so like, it's, it reminded me of the werewolves in Twilight because nobody lies. The Owen Collie don't lie. They just omit things sometimes because they can communicate like through their pheromones or uh-huh. their tentacles or something. I mean, same. So they don't need to talk, which means that they like can't really conceal meaning from each other. So there's no lying. But they... Um, not only will they, it takes a long time before she's able to get pen and paper because they don't want to give it to her. At one point, she asks, like, oh, are there ruins? There must be ruins back on Earth. Like, there must be things to return to because they're like, well, you know, we cleaned up most of the radiation. So it's been like 200 years. So, like, there's some dogs and some lizards and stuff and like plants exist. <laughs> dogs and blizzards. <laughs> and, and there's like bugs and whatever. Um, and she's like, well, there must be ruins of, like, all the stuff we built. And they're like, no, we kind of got rid of all that. <laughs> like, you don't need it, wasn't, it. It just wasn't sparking joy, so we got rid of it. Well, and they they are fairly certain that the humans that go down there are going to be, like, not human. They're going to be a new thing. So they have taken measures to erase that. Um, to... to uh eliminate the temptation to try to like yes. go back to to they're, they're trying to force the development of new like conventions and new things correctamundo correctamundo um well you love saying correctamundo i do right? i do it's a fun it's a fun word for me an alien <laughs> okay. an alien would probably make me stop saying it. <laughs> um so the the most like action packed part of the book is the third book um nursery where she has been tasked with waking up 40 humans and like training, getting them ready to meet the aliens. Um, and none of these characters like really stand out. Like they serve purposes. Um, but for the most part, they are like foils to various aspects of her experience. So, so we don't really have any other humans in this book who are worth talking about there, specifically, wanna, except as like a, as a collection of, character traits or 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 uh parables or something yeah i want to bring up two real quick so like she 
she starts waking up women first um, because there is a bit where they where she's like demanding to talk to another human before before she goes into this nursery scenario. And they're like, all right, cool. Get in the room with this guy, Paul, that we've had alive for 40 years. Mm-hmm. And within minutes, Paul is trying to have sex with her. And man, can you just not? Yep. Dudes, like human dudes, can you just like cool it for a second? And he's trying to convince her to like not go to Earth with the aliens and not do what they want, what they want her to do. And when she's like, no, he's like, all right, well, let's have sex, I guess, because they promised me that I could have sex with you. Man, like everybody just cool it. Come on. And she, like, I think the way that she gets away from that is being like, man, you've been alive all this time, but you were like 14 when the war went down and you don't remember who your family is like what if i was related to you and he like freaks out and like hits her or something it's very bizarre man yeah it sucks it's pretty bad and so she has that in mind when she is waking up the other humans and is like well i'm gonna wake up a couple women first can I just wake up some people who are less horny, please? 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 maybe they won't just fight me or try to rape me. Um, and the first woman she does wake up does try to fight her. <laughs> She's like, what is this? You must be a Russian. Like, there's a lot of Cold War, like, oh, do the Russians have us? Is that what this all is? They're just experimenting like Louise, on. Like you wake up Louise Mensch. Yes. And yeah, yes. she's like, oh, God, it must be a, this is a Russian psyop. We all we're all captives of Jill Stein or whatever yeah, it is. Yeah, compromat. They all have compromat <laughs> on us. Um, she does, but she does eventually wake up a bunch of people, and she wakes up this guy Joseph. That you know, she's going through dossiers. He is also a widower. Um, he is a I think a, like a Chinese born Canadian, um, and he's one of the few people in the book that we actually get like humans dislike him for his difference like other humans um end up plotting to like hurt him because he's close to her and they don't trust her mm-hmm. and um they cite that he is like because he's chinese or because he's different so like the book doesn't dwell on that it actually just says it and moves on in a way that's like oh yeah humanity's bad but this other thing is worse um like kind of what you were saying before of like the the trope of humanity you know rallying and kind of ignoring its internal differences when faced with a with an alien force mm-hmm. there's a decent chunk of this book where the humans don't even believe that there are aliens because they're just trapped in this room together and so they do a bunch of bad human stuff to each other first and then they're all just mad about each other when the aliens show up great good yep very good um and so joseph is interesting because like you don't i don't know he's like a love interest for her uh even though she's the protagonist he's just kind of a guy who's hanging out and wants to be with her and so her uloi wants to be with him too and one of the weirder scenes in this book andrew Mm -hmm. is effectively Nikanj coercing both of them into having like mind sex through it 
I'm not sure what to make of that phrase. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm a little at a loss over here. And this like builds to them. It's like part of their plan to like have, you know, fresh genetic material to make new human like alien hybrids basically. Um, but it takes advantage of their relationship and takes advantage of them and like forces them to have space sex with it. Um, and it's weird. It's just a weird sequence that I don't think I've ever seen in a book before because it is explicitly like making people do things against their will, but also like really examining how Stockholm syndrome works in a way because she knows what few options she has and she does have feelings for Joseph that the alien is taking advantage of. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't. I don't they also talk about it as like the way that we breed animals on farms. All those parallels are there throughout the entire book. So like there's a lot of I left the book not only thinking about forms of oppression and and hierarchy but also just like very squeamish about humanity's chosen role vis-a-vis the rest of the planet and okay. the way that we have just made ourselves uh like we make pandas bone like we just like we because they're running out we just said here's how to bone and we're gonna make you bone and well we're and they're running out because it. not every I, I guess i don't think you could probably lay like every single extinction at our hands at but our a feet, lot of them certainly most of the recent ones yep um and so that's in, that's an yeah that's because mm-hmm. these aliens are not responsible for our extinction like our at least what was going to be our extinction so they are like they are proposing that they are the good guys but the way that they take advantage of humans throughout this book is is just really not the good guys i mean i mean uh, the so if you, to continue with your your comparison to like how we treat animals and stuff i mean if they're if they were smarter than us, like like maybe the the food chain is a meritocracy. Like if they were oh <laughs> good enough, like if sharks or dolphins or, or or cats or something were supposed to be the dominant species, then why aren't they? Why don't they go for it? Oh no, oh gosh! What, I'm think- just saying, like if you come at the king, you best not miss. <laughs> if you're gonna come for humanity, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know, maybe and and and. <laughs> I would imagine that these aliens, like, they can probably feel things about us. They can feel that they need humanity in some way, but they probably also just view themselves as inherently above us in terms of, like, evolution or, 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 like, personhood. And so they're probably not bothered by it, right? Like, I, I don't... They're not I who, I like my cat very much, and I worry about his comfort. But we are not equals, no matter how much he thinks that we are. That is interesting. So, and this will kind of wrap up my discussion of the book proper, I think, because um, they don't view humans as equals, but they really need that cancer technology first of all. So that's a thing. They also do lust like for humans. That there are a couple points where. Nakanj in particular is like telling Lilith that he really wants her and wants her and Joseph in a way that feels very, I guess, like human. But 
Um, I mean, I get it. You know, as a race, we're just like a bunch of snacks. We are. It's true. We're very snack-like. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the the most dastardly thing that they do is they, in the pairings or in the trios, rather, they change the genetic makeup of the humans so that they are like less satisfied with just each other and are dependent upon the Uloi for further reproduction. So okay. even when they go down to Earth and the humans... You know, the book ends with, like, a lot of action and people, you know, attempting to revolt against the aliens before they go down to Earth. Um, the One of them tells Lilith at the end, like, listen, they're not having any more humans unless we're involved. And so they can run away, but they're going to have to come back. Okay. Which is, again, like, as much as they seem like benevolent caretakers of a species that almost killed itself, they are very... Uh, selfish with what they want. Sure. Um, and I, I think that to Butler's overall canon does a good job of like the the lies that the aliens are telling themselves, I think, in terms of them being the good guys and wanting to help. That's okay. just not there. Mm-hmm. Um, I did think though, Andrew. Oh boy, before, not again. <laughs> I know. Before I got like before I finished this book, when I didn't realize how bad some of the stuff was, mm-hmm. I was just thinking about like meeting aliens and how mm-hmm. cool that would be. Right. I just wanted to know, in a totally equal, consensual way, what alien would you bone? Like it's an interesting question, and and it it does assume sort of a Star Trek esque. Yeah. Like gen- genitalia compatibility <laughs> situation. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, my answer, of course, I mean, it couldn't be anything else. My answer is ALF because ALF does stand for alien. I'd like to. F- <laughs> okay. Okay. So that's my that's the canonical answer. You want the only way you want to go is the Gordon Shem way. Yeah, I want to go the Gordon Shem way. Okay. If you have read Dawn, you the listener, and have some additional thoughts, please feel free to send them to us at overduepod at gmail.com. Hit us up online at twitter.com slash overduepod or facebook.com slash overduepod. A lot of folks reaching out in the past week uh, in reaction to our name of the wind episode. Uh, including Maki, Caitlin, Julie, Ryan, Michelle, Ellen, Jamie, Kara, Tessa, Zach, Victor, Reed, and many, many more. Thanks, guys. Uh, that's one way that folks find the show. Andrew, if folks did just find us and want to know more, where should they go? Overduepodcast.com. What's that? It's a website. Ah. <laughs> Do you need like more information? Yeah. Up there, we have links to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and our RSS feed. You can subscribe there and also in Spotify and Stitcher if you want to listen to new episodes of the show when they come out every Monday. Uh, we also have a link to our Patreon project, patreon.com slash overdue pod. You can use that to support us financially, you know, buy books for us, hosting equipment, and also uh, recommend books to us and get bonus episodes before other people get them. So mm. just like, become a little bit special. Um, we just posted our February schedule. But let's run down it. So uh, this today, obviously, Craig read Dawn by Octavia Butler. 
Uh, next week, February 11th, I will be reading Native Son by Richard Wright. Uh, February 18th, we'll be reading How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. So excited to finally figure that out. Um, and February 25th, I'll be reading Speaker for the Dead by Orson Scott Card. For that one in particular, if you want to buy a copy and read along with us, we would encourage you to find a used copy instead of uh, supporting Orson Scott Card by buying a new copy. But, you know, you... Do whatever makes you comfortable, I guess, is yeah, is what we'd say. And then we have a bonus episode, Akata Witch by Nadia Korfor. Okay, everybody, thank you so much for listening to our podcast for another week. Until we talk to you next week, everybody, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast. It was foolish to challenge the gods. After battling the goddess Athena for three days, Enceladus had all but resigned himself to the fate of so many of his fellow giants. But he'd escaped her for the moment, and perhaps that would become his advantage. Enceladus had barely caught his breath when he heard the horses. He whipped around, worried Athena had tracked him to the Ionian Sea, but it was one of Enceladus' own, another giant. As the giant grew closer, Enceladus realized something was wrong. Instead of legs, Enceladus and his brother giants slithered on two large serpents with snapping maws where the feet should be. But this giant's serpents weren't snapping, and its face sagged. An arrow whizzed past Enceladus' face. This wasn't a giant. It was a god. You foolish, foolish giant. No one rebels against the gods and escapes unscathed. Athena, the goddess of war and wisdom, peeled off the face of a giant she'd flayed alive, revealing her own face, dripping with blood. She kept the skin wrapped around her like a cloak, Enceladus's leg serpents snapped and spit at Athena, but their fangs couldn't pierce the hide of his own kind. It was a perfect shield. Athena knocked Enceladus into the Ionian Sea. Then she crouched down and lifted the entire isle of Sycalos. Athena had a divine, godly strength. Plucking an island out of the ocean was as easy for her as it was for a man to pick up his child. Athena straightened up, raising the island above her. She swung it around over Enceladus and slammed the island on his head. Enceladus crumpled under the blow of the island. He sank and then vanished beneath the landmass. His blood and anger rippled outward from the island. The place where Enceladus was defeated became Mount Etna, and the buried giant was reduced to expressing his wrath through eruptions and earthquakes. Yet something wasn't right. As she watched steam build above Mount Etna, Athena knew her heart was missing a piece. She'd used her wisdom and wit to defeat the enemy, embracing her role as a goddess of war, and it felt empty. 
She was destined for something greater, she was certain. Welcome to Mythology on the Parcast Network. Every Tuesday, we present dramatic stories from ancient mythology and explore their origins. I'm your host and narrator, Vanessa Richardson. Today, we're focusing on the Greek goddess Athena. She's the goddess of war and military strategy, but also the goddess of wisdom, civilization, and the arts. In her mythology, she's caught between who she is and who she wants to be. New episodes of Mythology release every Tuesday, and you can find us and all of Parcast's podcasts wherever you listen to podcasts. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. Something to note in these episodes, all Greek myths have many versions and variations. We've selected those we felt are the most dramatic and entertaining, and supplemented them with additional research into Greek traditions. Additionally, each Greek myth takes place in a wide expanded universe. While we'll cover some major myths of Athena over the next few episodes, this won't be her only appearance in the podcast. Goddess of the arts and of war, Athena exhibits a dichotomy in Greek culture. She's a woman warrior in a culture where women didn't go to war, and a household goddess who vowed to never be a lover or a mother. Athena is masculine, feminine, and something greater than both. She's a goddess for everyone, and a goddess for no one. Ancient Greek society had clear gender roles, treating women as second-class citizens. But Athena exists outside that construct. She'll skin a giant alive, and then go weave a tapestry. She's as apt to teach men gardening and pottery as she is to help them slay their enemies. Unlike her half-brother and rival, Ares, the war god, Athena approaches war with logic and meditation. At the start of a battle, Ares leaps into action, while Athena waits, plans, then leads men to bloody victory. She values rational thinking over emotion, but is not without rage and bloodlust. Classicist Walter F. Otto characterized Athena as the goddess of nearness because she was always beside the Greek heroes in battle, guiding their spears and swords. She is, like all Greek gods, a killer. However, Athena prefers to change errant humans into other forms, doling out punishments while preserving life. She also transforms herself taking a male appearance multiple times in the Iliad and the Odyssey. That isn't to say she doesn't embrace a female role, too. In today's myths, the building of the Palladium, the judgment of Paris, and the story of Arachne, Athena strives to be recognized as feminine, and this may be the hardest battle the goddess of war has ever fought. The king of the gods had a headache, and Zeus's son, Hephaestus, like many children, was only making it worse. 
Hephaestus was god of the forge, born with a club foot. To him, a headache was nothing. And then I realized I could put another axe head on my existing axe and kill two men with one blow. Genius, right? Oh, my head is killing me. That's the idea. Both heads could kill. Two heads, one axe. Zeus gestured to his forehead, frustrated. It feels like my skull is expanding and contracting. Maybe I should go... Oh, Oh, headache. I thought we were still on axe heads. Zeus continued moaning as he dropped to the floor, gripped his head, and rocked back and forth. Hephaestus looked on, torn between sympathy and opportunity. Anything I can do? Maybe take over your duties for a time? Not that a headache could ever take down the great god Zeus. Oh, Hephaestus, will you... Hephaestus eyed his brand new double-headed axe. Then Zeus doubled over in front of him. The opportunity was ripe. Zeus had overthrown Hephaestus' grandfather. Perhaps patricide ran in the family. Make it stop. End it. Cut off my head. Hephaestus hid his grin as he grabbed his double-head axe. After today, the gods of Mount Olympus would bow to Hephaestus. He wound up and aimed straight for Zeus's skull. The axe cleaved Zeus's head in half. As Zeus's eyes spread wide apart, a battle helmet emerged from where his brain should have been. Ah! Hephaestus dropped his axe in shock as a fully armored warrior woman sprang from Zeus's head, shouting a battle cry. All thoughts of ruling Mount Olympus faded in the face of this fearsome, beautiful goddess. Ready for battle, Athena stepped out of her father's head and into the light of Mount Olympus. Athena was born without a mother, the child of Zeus alone. She emerged a rational adult, capable of complex thought, and ready to fight for her life. Yet because the Greek gods are modeled on humans, with human flaws and emotions, there is one story of Athena's childhood and a youthful accident that guided the rest of her life. Zeus was accustomed to his children having a mother, so after he fused his head back together, he wasn't sure what to do with Athena. Eventually, the single dad sent his new daughter away to be educated by his nephew, Triton. Triton was a fish-tailed ocean god, so Athena spent much of her time in and around water, and more of her time with Triton's daughter, Pallas. Pallas was a water nymph, a maiden of the ocean, and Athena's only friend. But today, the war goddess and the water nymph raised their swords, squaring off against each other. The pair sparred on the surface of a lake. Pallas floated amid a column of waves, her long hair and shimmering fishtail distracting from her killer aim. Athena defended herself from atop a sleek raft, wearing armor as always. She pushed her sword forward, calling out her moves as she executed them. Striking, stabbing, dodging, ducking, and slicing, lunging. As Pallas lunged, Athena used her shield to knock Pallas over. Rising from the waves, Pallas spit water into Athena's face. Hey! (laughs) 
palace spouted more water, somehow forming it into perfect concentric circles, like aquatic smoke rings. Athena couldn't help but laugh. Palace, be serious. My father's coming to watch us spar tomorrow. We have to impress him. You have to impress him. If I impress him, you know where I'll end up. And my father won't be happy about that. You're filthy. You've heard the stories. And you have a hundred half-siblings to prove it. Thirty-seven. I have thirty-seven half-siblings. That's an army, warrior goddess. Let's go again. I want to get that spinning parry right. Athena was quite skilled in combat. It helped that she took to it naturally, like palace to water. She'd been ecstatic to hear Triton declare that they were finally good enough to spar in front of Zeus. The proud fathers had invited a crowd of gods, nymphs, and even a few mortals they fancied. Rowing out onto the lake, Athena fiddled with her helmet. She knew her armor made her look ferocious, but she still felt like a child in a woman's body. What if she fell off her raft? What if her mind went blank and she froze? What if her father, the king of the gods, thought she was only average? A terrifying column of water arose from the depths. Inside it, Pallas. She met Athena's eye and flashed a quick smile. Athena relaxed. She wasn't alone. She had Pallas. With her best friend beside her, Athena had nothing to worry about. They began to spar. In the audience, Zeus watched intently. Next to him, his wife Hera, the goddess of marriage, looked around, intent in a different way. Aphrodite has such a nice nose, don't you think? Sure. That's it. Slice and dodge. Well done. You've never noticed it? I guess it's fine, if you like noses. It looks quite like Athena's. Don't start on this again. I don't understand why you... She's going to fall in the water. A wave crashed over Athena, soaking her. Athena slipped, but kept her footing on the raft. Come on, Athena. You can do it. Get back up there. Raise that sword. You'll win this yet. They aren't actually fighting. It's a mock spar. At the end of which, my daughter will win. Zeus nervously watched Athena struggle through the next few maneuvers. She's going to fall and embarrass us. Us? She does have a mother. I knew it. I meant Athena and myself. As Zeus worried, Athena relaxed into the rhythm of the spar. She breathed deeply as she pressed her shield against Pallas's sword. Her instincts took over. Suddenly, a new heat rushed through Athena's veins. She'd never felt this warrior power before, but it possessed her. Her feet danced more nimbly. Her sword twisted more sharply. She tasted metal in her mouth. For the first time, she might want to kill. Across the lake, Zeus adjusted his shield. The sun gleamed off of it. Getting an idea, he tilted his shield, aiming the ray of light at Pallas. In the water, the light caught Pallas's eye. She looked up. Meanwhile, Athena stabbed toward Pallas's heart, a final flourish, the perfectly executed move she was born for. This was her gift, combat. Athena lunged, expecting Pallas to dodge as they had rehearsed. 
She didn't notice that Pallas's face was tilted up, distracted. Pallas looked towards Zeus as Athena's sword pierced her heart. Instead of blood, water flowed from Pallas's wound. She shrank, dissolving, until all that was left were her eyes, which transformed into two wiggling minnows. Pallas was dead. If you enjoyed listening to this preview of our episode on Athena and want to hear the rest of it, search and subscribe to Mythology wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes release every Tuesday.